When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson. They didn't have email servers in 1884, but the Republican candidate for president, James G. Blaine, would have known just what to do with one if it had held his private correspondence. He'd have asked that it be burned to avoid the prying eyes of investigators looking into his inside deals with the railroad interests. Does this sound familiar? It should. It's why we're staying with the election of 1884 for a second week in a row. More on those letters and rum, Romanism, and rebellion in a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you like presidents, I find myself having a mild affection for them. The Great Courses has a set of lectures that you might enjoy. It's called The Great Presidents. It studies 12 of our country's greatest presidents, from Washington to Lincoln to FDR to Kennedy. The Great Courses has created a special limited-time offer for Whistle Stop listeners. You can get The uh, Great Presidents or any of their other eight most popular best-selling courses, and uh, you get 80% off. So if you're a Whistlestop listener and all of these things apply to you, go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our whistlestop today is September 27th, 1884. We are in Elyria, Ohio. Republican presidential candidate James G. Blaine of Maine is on a train headed through the state in a series of campaign stops. As the train passes out of the city, it goes by the Lake Erie Company. And in front of the Lake Erie Company are a group of men in the yard. And Mr. Blaine sees them there and walks out onto the platform of the train. And we'll pick up the scene from the Milwaukee Sentinel, which was covering it. When Blaine appeared, a large body of men came running out of the shops and rushed forward, shouting and cheering to shake hands with Mr. Blaine. They were evidently genuine working men with bare breasts and arms and sweating and begrimed faces. Mr. Blaine leaned forward, holding out his hand, and said, How are you, boys? The men shouted back, We're Blaine to a man. Whatever may be said, continued the paper, and much must justly be said against Mr. Blaine as a public man, only the blindness and bitterest prejudice can deny that he possesses the quality of interesting the mind and making friends among the people. Curiosity alone does not bring working men from their shops, and tradesmen from their stores, and farmers from their fields to welcome a public man. He has some secret quality which is very near to greatness. He has the quality of a popular leader, the power to stimulate the imagination and attract sympathies of masses of men. He is a splendid and imposing figure upon the public stage, exciting powerful friendship or hatred. He is both abused and praised to success, but nowhere does he meet with the indifference that falls to the lot of mediocrity. You may recognize that our train has not moved from its previous destination. We were very near here just last week. It could be a crew change or equipment trouble or fog over Chicago. 
But the real reason that we couldn't move on from the campaign of 1884 is the feeling of historical transposition taking place in my head. It's not just that we're using this historical present to amuse ourselves and probably confuse you, the listener, but it's just impossible to resist the story of a politician who took extraordinary efforts to hide his personal correspondence when the Democratic Party is likely to nominate a woman today who has done a version of the same thing. So I now introduce you to something called the Mulligan Letters. And you'll remember, before we get to the Mulligan Letters, that uh, James G. Blaine is the Republican nominee running against Grover Cleveland. Last week we spent some time with Grover Cleveland and his illegitimate baby problems and uh, the case of Maria Halpin. Well, now we're going to talk about James G. Blaine, who had the majority of his problems had to do with public behavior in public office. And they all, uh, or most of them, revolve around something called the Mulligan Letters. Blaine had been a perennial Republican nominee or possible nominee going back to uh, 1876. This is, we're talking about the election of 1884, but 1876 was the first time Republicans wanted to nominate him uh, because of all these strong qualities. He'd been Speaker of the House, but the Mulligan letters were always uh, what caused him issues. And so we've got to go back to 1869 when Blaine was in the House and used his influence as Speaker of the House to ensure the passage of a land grant for the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad. In gratitude, Warren Fisher, his name will be very important, basically Blaine, Fisher, and Mulligan are the names you should write down on the whistle-stop commemorative pad that you keep next to your listening device in order to track these names. In gratitude for this land grant, Warren Fisher, who was one of the firm's contractors, allowed Blaine to sell securities in the railroad company and pocket an enormous amount of money. When the railroad then had financial difficulties resulting in the bonds that Blaine owned becoming worthless, one of the firm's wealthy backers, somebody named Tom Scott, who you, whose name you can forget for the moment, bought back all those worthless bonds at a considerable price. They were worthless, but he bought them anyway. And that was another way in which Blaine lined his pockets. So this was serious enough of a problem for Blaine that the House Judiciary Committee initiated an investigation to see if he had used his office to enrich himself. And on April 24th, 1876, this is now, of course, years after the, all of these shenanigans took place. Blaine uh, took to the floor of the House to explain himself while this Judiciary Committee investigation was going on. And Blaine said, I have never done anything in my public career for which I could be put to the faintest blush in any presence or for which I cannot answer to my constituents, my conscience, and the great searcher of hearts. So that was a good bit of oratory. Blaine was very good at that. We, we know about his effect on the uh, bare-chested men going about their day, but we, he also had a strong effect on the House floor and uh, was powerful among other men. But the problem for Blaine was he made this bold proclamation without knowledge that there were certain letters in the possession of a fellow named Mulligan, who was a clerk for Warren Fisher, and that those letters would tell a slightly different story than the one Blaine was telling on the House floor. So basically these letters, which were from Blaine to Fisher, outlined the scheme and outlined the way in which Blaine was going to get paid for helping the railroad out. And so 
the House Judiciary Committee compelled Mulligan to come to Washington from Boston on the long, dirty, jostling train to provide testimony against Blaine. And Mulligan came to town and started to do so and was giving his testimony. And then he was interrupted because one of the members of the committee fell ill. And it was rumored at the time that Blaine had basically worked it out with one of his colleagues on and one of his allies on the committee to basically sort of fake an illness to get the testimony delayed. And what will happen next will delight and amaze you. And so I'm going to now turn to the transcript of the House Investigating Committee and the players in this drama, as I mentioned, are Blaine, Warren Fisher, the railroad guy, and his clerk, Mulligan. In the proceedings, and the transcript I will read to you, it's basically a conversation between members of Congress investigating the Mulligan letters and Blaine's perfidy and self-dealing. And so in the prosecutorial role is a man named Congressman Eppa, E-P-P-A, Hunton of Virginia. And let's join Mr. Hunton as he prowls around the room explaining what happened to Mulligan after Mulligan was interrupted from testifying and went back to his hotel. So I'm in the voice here now of Eppa Hutton, but he's also speaking in the voice of Mulligan and the story that Mulligan told him about what happened. Upon the evening of his first arrival in the city of Washington, before I knew he was in the city, Mr. Mulligan and Warren Fisher were waited on by Mr. Blaine. They were invited to the house of Mr. Blaine. Mr. Mulligan said, Mr. Blaine, I decline to go to your house. I do not want to talk about what I've been brought here for. I desire to take the stand tomorrow, untrammeled by the conversation of any kind with anybody. Warren Fisher, the railroad executive, went to the house of Mr. Blaine, and twice Mr. Blaine sent a messenger down to induce Mulligan to come to his house. Mr. Mulligan still declined, and presently Mr. Blaine and Warren Fisher came into the hotel where Mulligan stopped in the city of Washington. That was the Riggs Hotel, which is no longer here. Continuing from Eppa Hutton, Mr. Mulligan was in the barbershop undergoing the pleasant operation of shaving or about to undergo it. And Mr. Blaine followed him into the barbershop and commenced to entreat and earnestly to request that Mr. Mulligan would give up those letters, which Blaine had addressed to Warren Fisher. Mulligan declined to do it. At this point, uh, uh, Congressman Fry, who is on Blaine's side, interrupts. Mr. Speaker, if the gentleman and then another member of the House says, I object to the interruption. Mr. Farai says, I ask my colleague of the committee, may I interrupt him? Mr. Hunton says, yes, you may interrupt me. Mr. Fry says, the gentleman is now stating evidence, and I desire him to be very careful because, as I remember it, there is no testimony whatever showing or tending to show that Mr. Blaine, in a barber shop, in the presence of the barber, entreated Mulligan for those letters. Hunton replies, it matters not where he entreated them. I am under the impression it was there, but I am not certain. Fry, the letters were not read in any barber shop. I will take him out of the barber shop, Hunton says. It does not matter in the least where the entreaty was made. Mr. Blaine entreated him. I give you now the substance of the language of the witness. He entreated him with tears in his eyes, going down on his knees, or almost on his knees. In the barber shop? Fry asks. I did not say in the barber shop. I do not care where it was. It was in his room, I believe. But he made this entreaty, the witness said, with tears in his eyes almost, if not quite, on his knees. If you do not deliver those letters to me, I am ruined and my family disgraced. Of course, I need to be understood here that the witness meant that Blaine's family would be disgraced through the ruin of Mr. Blaine. He also threatened to commit suicide. 
Mr. Mulligan refused to deliver the letters. He said, Mr. Blaine, I see by the evening paper that my testimony given to the committee today is to be assailed, to use his own word, impugned. And in case my character and testimony are assailed, I want those letters to justify me in my testimony before the committee. Mr. Blaine asked, do you suppose I am going to assail you? The witness said, if you do not assail me, others may, and my character is too dear to me to not vindicate it if I can. Mr. Blaine then tried politics with him, and he asked the witness, are you content with your station? To this, Mulligan said, he would like to improve it if he could. Mr. Blaine said, would you like a political office? Mulligan replied he did not like politics and did not care about it. Mr. Blaine then asked how he would like a foreign consulship. He said he would not like it. And after that, Mr. Blaine said, let me see the letters to peruse them. The witness objected, but he finally, upon a pledge of honor from Mr. Blaine, that he would return the letters, gave him the letters to read. Mr. Blaine read them over once or twice and returned them to the witness. Again, he made an effort to obtain those letters, and Mr. Mulligan left the company and went into his room. In a short time, Mr. Blaine followed him into his room, and the scene occurred between the parties without any witnesses. Mr. Blaine again endeavored to get possession of the letters. The witness again declined to deliver them. The witness says that Mr. Blaine said, I want to reread those letters again, and I want to have them for that purpose. He asked the witness to let him see the letters again, and the witness said that on another pledge of honor, he would return them to him. He delivered those letters over a second time to Mr. Blaine to read and return them. And when Mr. Blaine had read them and kept them a short time, he refused to deliver them back. The witness became excited, demanded his letters, and followed Mr. Blaine into the room of Mr. Atkins on the floor below, and there demanded his letters from Mr. Blaine. And he not only demanded his letters, but he demanded the private memorandum, which the witness himself had made to use on his examination before the committee to refresh his memory. This was taken by Mr. Blaine, and this Mr. Blaine also refused to deliver. So Blaine takes back his letters and also takes the notes that Mulligan was going to use before his testimony, and now Mulligan is screwed. He has no letters. And so the committee has a great fight over whether the letters actually belong to Blaine, who had written them, or to Fisher, who had been sent the letters. When you send a letter, is it still yours, even after somebody else receives it, is basically the question. And one of Blaine's pursuers asked, much as a right-thinking person might ask of Hillary Clinton today, if there was nothing in those letters, why would he have occasion to blush over them, it was asked. Why should he be so determined to recover and retain them? And he gives a thundering defense of himself and presents the letters in his hand, slamming them down on the desk in the house, and starts to read from them. But of course, he doesn't read the bad stuff. He just reads little bits of it. It's like Nixon editing those 19 minutes of audio tape on the fly. And the parts he reads makes it all sound very innocuous and fine. So Blaine gives this speech, and a number of his supporters in the Republican Party are behind him. But then, as the investigation is going on, Blaine suddenly falls ill, and the committee has to adjourn again. There's a lot of suddenly becoming ill in order to create adjournments. And when he was ill, Blaine was appointed then to the unexpired term of Senator Justin S. Murill. So the House didn't have any jurisdiction over him anymore because Blaine was now a senator, and they had to drop the case. So Blaine's friends, of course, declared that this was a vindication. Of course, there was no such vindication at all. And the right-thinking Americans said, you've got to be kidding me. 
And it was based on that view that Blaine was denied his party's nomination in 1876. But this did not stop the pro-Blaine members of the Republican Party and the sense of vindication on Blaine's behalf. And before we go on from 1876, we, we must just kind of wallow for a moment in the nominating speech that was made for Blaine at the Republican convention, because it is one of the great pieces of mangled oratory. It's like one of those twisted metal and garbage structures you see by the side of the road on a long summer trip. And the nominating speech was made by Robert Green Ingersoll. And I like to imagine him doing this in the same outfit and same sort of posture as Stanley Tucci in The Hunger Games. Ingersoll referred to Blaine as a man whose political reputation is spotless as a star. And this nomination, of course, comes after all this theatricality and this uh, question in the House Judiciary Committee. Oh, and one other thing. It's the centennial of America's birth in 1876. Ingersoll. This is a grand year, a year in which we call for the man who has torn from the throat of treason the tongue of slander, a man that has snatched the mask of democracy from the hideous face of rebellion, a man who, like an intellectual athlete, stood in the arena of debate, challenged all comers, and who, up to the present moment, is a total stranger to defeat. Like an armed warrior, like a plumed knight, James G. Blaine marched down the halls of the American Congress and threw his shining lances full and fair against the brazen foreheads of every defamer of this country and maligner of his honor. So that uh, didn't work, but it was some fancy piece of writing by Robert Greene Ingersoll describing not only Blaine as the spotless star, but also as one who couldn't be taken down by his pursuers. So Blaine rumbles around and uh, doesn't get the nomination in 1880. And then, though, he's up to 1884, in which case he does get the nomination. Now, when he does get the nomination, Republicans are having issues and the mugwumps split from the party because the Mulligan letters fiasco, though it was long in the past, still bedeviled Blaine, and the Mugwumps wanted reform in the Republican Party and wanted reform nationally from the inside-dealing patronage system of political operation that had operated before then. So the Mugwumps are splitting the vote in the Republican Party. Essentially, Mugwump is an Algonquin Indian term, meaning chief. It also, according to one uh, thing I read, meant someone with their mug on one side and their wump on the other diehard party Republicans didn't like these independents. Uh, here, Senator John Ingalls describes them. Mr. President, the neuter gender is not popular in either nature or in society. Independents are effeminate without being masculine or feminine, unable either to beget or to bear, doomed to sterility, isolation, and extinction. But those independents, those mugwumps, were leaving the Republican Party in part because of Blaine, in part because the party was seen as corrupt. And they were gravitating towards Cleveland, who was so clean of the Washington stink, he'd never actually even been to the capital city. Blaine had other problems too. Roscoe Conkling, who was a New York congressman and senator, was angry because Blaine had beaten him out for the nomination. So he was, he was from a different branch of the Republican Party. He was actually opposed to civil service reform, but he nevertheless sort of agreed with the Mugwumps in their hatred of Blaine when a group of 
supporters came to Roscoe Conkling of New York and asked him to support Blaine. He said, gentlemen, I've given up criminal law. So Blaine had some real cleaning up to do, and he employed his considerable charm in that effort. Uh, while Cleveland basically campaigned a couple of times, handful of times, uh, Blaine traveled all over the place, and he made, by one count, 400 different stops. Campaigning for office, as we've talked about before, was still not considered totally kosher. So Democratic newspapers accused Blaine of vote begging. Uh, Cleveland, by contrast, wrote the nation, did not try to snatch an office which it was the people's privilege to bestow unasked. So Blaine, dirty reputation, out there grubbing for votes. And now we come back to the Mulligan letters. On September 15th, 1884, there was another episode of the Mulligan letters because it turned out there were more Mulligan letters than the ones that Blaine had stolen back from Mr. Mulligan in that uh, desperate to and fro in the hotel. And they were published in the Boston Journal on September 15th. The most damning of the Mulligan letters, round two, was a single one that he, Blaine, had written to Warren Fisher. The letter was essentially Blaine saying, here's how you can write a letter that will exonerate me because I'm under this investigation by the House Judiciary Committee, and you should vouch for my character about this issue, and then I can present that letter to the committee from you, and it will, it will clear me. And so Blaine not only suggested that, that Fisher should write a letter, but he also suggested, gave him, the, <laughs> gave him the actual text of the letter. And so, to give you some sense of Blaine's voice, here is what Blaine wrote to Fisher and asked that Fisher write then in his own hand. Concealment of the investment and everything connected with it would have been very easy had concealment been desirable, but your action was as open and fair as the day. When the original enterprise failed, I knew with what severity the pecuniary loss fell upon you, and with what integrity and nerve you met it. Years having elapsed, it seems rather hard at this date to be compelled to meet a slander in a matter where your conduct was in the highest degree honorable and straightforward. You may use this letter in any way that will be of service to you. So the plan was for Fisher to scratch that out in his own hand, mail it uh, to Blaine, and then Blaine would show it to the press and it would exonerate him. The problem is that along with this fake letter was a cover letter <laughs> describing the scheme and how Blaine wanted it all to go down. And in it, at the very end, Blaine wrote in his own hand, burn this letter. Okay, so once the idea of burn this letter was exposed by the Boston Journal, it became the cry at every Democratic rally. Blaine was labeled Slippery Jim and Old Mulligan Letters, and the chant started to go up, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the Continental Liar from the state of Maine. You'll remember the cartoon of in The Judge with uh, Grover Cleveland losing his hat when confronted with the bawling baby that was his son born out of wedlock to Maria Halpin. There was an equally powerful uh, cartoon circulated about Blaine where it showed him being disrobed in front of an audience of onlookers and his body covered with tattoos, and each tattoo represented the various scandals that had stuck to him. The New York Times wrote that Blaine was a prostitutor of public trusts, a scheming jobber, and a reckless falsifier. You may also remember from our last episode that Blaine wasn't just pinned down by two bad episodes in the Mulligan letters, but he also was accused of marrying his wife only after he'd knocked her up and been forced to do so at the end of a shotgun. Blaine sued the paper that printed this story, 
But unlike Cleveland, who was able to battle back and, in fact, have some people see him as honorable for his behavior after his private indiscretions, Blaine took it on the chin, at least from the Lincoln, New Mexico paper called The Golden Era. Blaine did the only unmanly thing that could be done, attempt to make political capital out of the suit, create a temporary hurrah for Blaine, and then have upon his hands a disgusting suit, the progress of which must keep the name of his wife in a most distressing manner before the whole country for an indefinite amount of time. Other papers commented on the general low nature of the entire campaign of 1884. And they were in a small internal competition to see who could write the purplest prose about how sad the lot of the whole business had become. Here is the Milwaukee Daily Journal from Saturday, August 30th, 1884, winning for me what is the prize of the purplest prose. The stinking meat, the moldy bread, rancid butter, and drugged coffee— We'll fill out the bill of fare, which offers the mulligan letters and Maria Halpin for dessert, but it will not attract the people. The final blow for Blaine came near the very end of the campaign. One of his strengths was his support among Irish Americans in New York. And, he, and you'll remember that New York was, was sort of like Ohio or Florida today. It was the crucial state you had to win. So on October 19th, Blaine, who's been campaigning all over the place, is a little bit exhausted, and he appears with a number of clergymen uh, at a rally. And one of them was a fellow named Samuel D. Burchard. Blaine's a little tired, so he's not paying attention, as most politicians don't, when the blowhards who introduce you go on and on and on and on. But candidates always have to be a little careful because sometimes the blowhards have come to that reputation because they say things that are outrageous or outlandish or in their one little moment in the sun, they're trying to say something that will get them remembered. Well, Burchard said something that got him remembered. He denounced the Democrats as the party, quote, whose antecedents have been rum, Romanism and rebellion. Blaine was so tired, he, he didn't hear the remark or if he did hear it, he didn't think to rise and refute it. But at the event was a Democratic operatives who was transcribing all the remarks, much as these days each party sends an operative to the events with a video camera. Back then they sent them with a pen and the skills as a shorthand note taker. Uh, and once the Democratic leaders saw the remarks, which the Romanism's the problem, you're trying to win Irish votes in New York and Blaine was doing pretty well. But now it's a t basically that's an attack on the Catholics and the Pope in Rome. And this was catastrophic for Blaine, and the Democrats knew it, and so they took the stenography and then blasted it out to all of their papers. And Blaine was basically bedeviled at all of his future stops in New York by this charge of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. And as the game of telephone went on, it basically got reported that it was Blaine himself who had said this, not that he had merely refused to stand up against Burchard. And this had a reverberation effect beyond just this campaign, as Gil Troy, who writes in his great book, See How They Run, which is a source for many of our whistle stops. Troy explains how this put a chilling effect on campaigning because people blamed Blaine for being on the stump so much that he could even be in a position to get weighed down by the crazy remarks of somebody else campaigning on the same platform. In other words, if you weren't out grubbing for votes, you wouldn't get besmirched by party people or crazy people who are speaking on your behalf. 
the way Blaine had been by Burchard. So for several news cycles afterward, candidates worried about being Burchardized. The results at the end of the day in this election were incredibly close. There were several days of delay while the New York votes were counted. Cleveland won New York and only narrowly carried the whole election by just 23,000 votes. Cleveland won New York's 36 electoral votes. That put him over the top. After Election Day, Blaine was happy to blame the whole thing on Burchard and not his own stack of ethical problems. I should have carried New York by 10,000 if the weather had been clean on Election Day, he said, and Dr. Burchard had been doing his missionary work in Asia Minor. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com. Or even better, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember The Great Presidents and eight other best-selling courses. Any of them can be yours at 80% off. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Whistle Stop. Thegreatcourses.com slash Whistle Stop. Our producer is Mike Vuolo, who would never leave the party and become a mugwump. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer, and our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who is in the middle of his hardest study period of the year. But nevertheless, he tucked his sturdy thermos under his arm and bare chest and spelunked into the archives to find the best gems about the Mulligan letters. I'll be back in two weeks with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter, host of Inc. Uncensored, a podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurship, technology, cool companies, and everything else that hits the like buttons of my colleagues. This week, we'll be talking with Maria Aspen about... The rise of online lending and why finance is really cool now, really. And John Fine about... The pugilistic case for Take Your Kids to Work Today, literally. (laughs) And Chris Frieswick about... The 10th annual Inc. Magazine and Inc.com 30 Under 30 and why it makes me feel bad about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Plus whiskey and vaping and a genuine spit take. So subscribe to Inc. Uncensored at iTunes.com slash Panoply or Panoply.fm.